0: Today's podcast is sponsored by CBIA. This is Steady Habits, a Connecticut Mirror podcast. It's where we take a look at life here in the land of steady habits, what works, what doesn't, and how to make things work just a little bit better. I'm John Dankoski and Happy New Year. We took a little break around the holidays, but we're back, and so is the Connecticut State Legislature. So today we're going to bring you the first in a series of conversations we're having with Connecticut Mirror reporters previewing the legislative session, and it is going to be a session like no other. Mark Pazniokas, the Capitol Bureau Chief, wrote in the Connecticut Mirror this week about how lawmakers today will be bundled up outside taking their oath. They're going to be working on the lawn of the Capitol and in the parking lot. Why? Well, because of COVID-19. All throughout this session, things will be done on Zoom. You're not going to have the access to lawmakers that you've had in the past. So that's going to make for a very different legislative session. Our conversation was recorded on Tuesday night in front of an audience of 250 people or so, also on Zoom, with Mark Pazniokas, and also Jenna Carlesso, who covers health for the Connecticut Mirror, and Kastori Panagioti, the data reporter for the Mirror, who's keeping track of all the COVID numbers for us. Throughout the course of our conversation, we got some questions coming in from our audience, and we also had a lot of questions of our own, including for Mark, about how this legislative session is going to be different. Are we going to see the same types of bills, the same numbers of bills coming up for debate when we have a legislature that's meeting remotely? I'll quote
1: Matt Ritter, who's going to become the House Speaker tomorrow, and he said the limits of COVID don't mean that the legislature can't tackle big and complicated things, but it does mean there won't be as many of them. There is a, uh, there's a limit on bandwidth when you are doing things virtually. Um, and we use bandwidth kind of as a figurative term, but there, there's sort of a, there's a literal aspect to that as well. And when everything is going to be done virtually um, it becomes very cumbersome. And, and that will be a factor. And, um, they have agreed on rules that are intended to move the legislature from its even in, in this age uh, a, still a reliance on paper um bills are filed on paper they are moved from chamber to chamber when they're acted on you know it's it's a it's a real old school thing and marty looney the senate president said you know the staff has worked very hard to move the legislature very quickly um, from a quill pen to a computer, and that's kind of what they've <laughs> tried to do. Um, but it is—it's going to be harder and harder to do a lot of complicated things. You will lose all the important casual conversations that take place uh, between lawmakers in the chamber, in committee uh, hearing rooms, in the corridors. Uh, over coffee in the LLB. It's the opportunity for the public, for lobbyists and reporters to see who is in a certain committee room, what they're interested in, to pick up intel about what are the arguments um, that are uh, bubbling up against or for something, there is just a lot of informal exchanges of information that go on at uh, the state capitol, and that cannot be replicated online very easily.
0: And, and Jenna, I want to go to you because I, I want to talk to you in just a moment about some of the, the really substantive issues that you're going to be covering during this legislative session. But many of those substantive issues really do carry... A lot of uh, passionate debate. There are a lot of people who have joined in rallies at the Capitol around them, who join in public hearings. And as Paz is saying, this is going to change the business of how these, you know, very important uh, votes are decided, how these very important issues are being argued.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, uh, certainly for folks, uh, it could be a problem for folks if you don't have a computer or a phone, but on the other hand, um, for the people who, like last year, we saw for the bill that would remove the religious exemption from mandatory uh, vaccinations, there was a very long public hearing on that. And you know, if you are unable, uh, you know, to take a day off work to go in uh, to the Capitol to testify, now you can testify on your computer.
0: Kasturi, I want to go to you and maybe we can get an overview of where exactly the state stands right now when it comes to COVID. Because all of these things that we're talking about, everything that's going to happen with lawmakers, really does have this overlay of we're still in the middle of a pandemic. It's changing the way that people are doing their work at the Capitol, but it's changing the lives of so many in the state you've been tracking COVID numbers, everything from hospitalizations to infection rates to how quickly people are getting vaccinated. What are some of the things that you're seeing right now in terms of trends of COVID in the state that you're only going to be watching for?
3: Yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a good question. Um, I think we're very much in the, in the second wave. We don't necessarily know that we've, uh, peaked in terms of hospitalizations to start with. Um, yeah, I think the situation just in general is just very tenuous. Um, I think that uh, one of the the two things that I spend a lot of time looking at are hospitalizations and also now the vaccine effort um, to try and get a sense of how quickly the state's distributing vaccines, who it's distributing, distributing it to, and what that will mean for its ability to sort of open up again. So, yeah, I think that we are in a second wave. Uh, we... Are seeing a slight downward trend in hospitalizations right now, which is very interesting. Even though cases are um, still pretty high, um, no one really understands why that is. But I think we're still waiting to see what the effects of the holiday are, um, what that mean, what that means for hospital capacity, what that means for reopening in general.
0: When you see that rolling average, uh, that, that average that comes out every couple days, that can get big headlines. It go, spikes to 9% and people get worried, but the hospitalizations go down. Kasturi, as a, as a data person, what numbers do you watch that you think make the most sense for people to pay attention to?
3: Yeah, I think that just in general, um, focus on daily numbers perhaps is not the best way to think about any of these things. You want the 70 rolling average, um, if you're trying to make any sort of conclusions about events and their effect on COVID spread, for instance, the holidays, um, you don't necessarily want to be going off the numbers that come out of the briefings because um, the governor reports tests based on the day that a test result comes back from a lab. Um, There's a separate data set that's that's hosted by the government uh, on CD Open Data that. Actually shows you uh, testing data based on the day that the specimen was collected, so that's a little bit more useful if you're trying to do that kind of analysis. But at the same time, there's only so much a, a lay person can do, um, so. Um, yeah, I think that I would just be careful about coming to any conclusions without looking at a seven-day rolling average and be particularly careful about drawing causal, causal relationships between events and COVID spread. Uh,
0: Paz, one of the things that we've noted throughout the course of this year, of course, is the governor has had these expanded emergency powers. Because the legislature hasn't been in session, the governor's really been communicating almost everything having to do with with COVID. Do you think any any of that changes in terms of Uh, The way that other lawmakers in the state get involved, do we start to see different sorts of messaging now that the session is about to get underway and other people are probably going to have some perhaps slightly different ideas about how to report information, what to do with that information, and, and really how well we're doing as far as things like vaccination? Well the question of
1: the legislature ceding to the governor these extraordinary powers becomes uh, more complicated when they are in session it is hard for legislators to say that we are not in a position to participate in the governance of connecticut during this pandemic and so that that's you know that's sort of the abstract idea that i think everybody can quickly get yeah they're they're in session they're there they should be making, helping making some of these decisions. Okay, we get that. Now you get the practicalities as to who wants to own the decision of whether or not your child is going to school, of whether or not your business can be open for 50%, for 75%, whether... You have to invest in more plexiglass shields between tables, whether you have to move uh, manufacturing machiner- machinery to provide social distancing. So that's the struggle here. There, I don't think there's any disagreement that the General Assembly needs, again, to uh, take some ownership here. So the, the governor's Uh, emergency, That it's the second of the two six months emergencies expires February 9th. That was very deliberate, um, that they wanted the legislature in for a month to kind of see what things look like, to give them a little time to then say, okay, what do we do on February 9th? Nobody really expects the world's going to go back to what it was in February of 2020. But the question is now, what will be on the governor? What will be solely in the control of the governor? And what will the General Assembly now be involved in? And we had a little preview of that really off stage, um, the private talks that the legislative leaders had about their own rules for how to handle this session and there was some back and forth on that um it's been pretty much resolved although one of the four caucus leaders uh senate republican leader kevin kelly is not uh as he described to me tonight not on the same page with the other three caucus leaders he still has concerns about the lack of public access to the building and to the process but i've not heard him really spell out Alternatives: how you safely make that happen. Uh, you know, one of the interesting things about our governor is I think, you know, certainly the polls would bear me out that his first year in governor was really considered a failure. Uh, it all built around one big idea that we are going to dramatically increase funding for transportation. We are going to do so by returning to uh, highway tolls and he uh he failed he failed miserably um even with smaller packages uh it was a great embarrassment for him it really uh colored his first year and the poll showed that he was among um, the least popular governors in the united states at the end of 2019 then the pandemic hits in march of last year the general assembly literally leaves town i mean they closed down the session and now the governor is free to govern as he sees fit Um, he is not shown a great skill set on putting forward a legislative package and getting it passed but he generally gets high remarks high marks and good polling results about his handling of the pandemic and so now we are in a third phase, um, again, where it's, you know, in the schools, we talk about the, the hybrid of virtual and in-person. Well, we well, now we have a hybrid year, and this is a challenge for the governor as well. So the question is, um, what will he propose in his state of the state tomorrow? Will there be specific proposals as opposed to sort of setting a tone? He has some things on the table in front of him, and it's unclear as to Mm. what he will push and his ability to get something passed in the General Assembly. So it really is... You know, this is kind of a. If this is a three act play, we're now starting the third act, and, and we're going to see what what plot twist uh, unfold.
0: Before we get too far away, though, from some of the things that you've been working on, Kasturi, and I want to bring in Jenna as well in a second. But let, let's talk about how the state is actually doing as far as vaccinating people right now. This is incredibly important because none of this stuff gets done if we can't actually get enough people vaccinated to go back to work whether it's at our pizza shop or at the state legislature so compared to other states kastari how is connecticut doing as far as getting vaccinations out to people
3: yeah so i think broadly uh on that on that basis connecticut seems to be doing very well i know that anecdotally jen has also been hearing from um from sources that the, the vaccine rollout's been relatively smooth is that fair to say
2: Yeah, as of Monday, it was close to 76,000 doses statewide. Um, You know, there's a little bit of a concern about nursing home workers' uh, participation rate, and they've launched a campaign to try to get more folks in. But nursing home residents and uh, hospital personnel, I'd say so, yeah.
0: I'm wondering, Jen, if we can stay with nursing homes because of of all the things that happened during the course of this last year, not just in Connecticut, but across the nation, nursing homes have been hit incredibly hard. So among the things we're watching, you know, how quickly can nursing home workers be vaccinated? But there are also questions that will come up during this legislative session around nursing home oversight and lots of questions from nursing homes themselves about finding more funding to actually help them do what they need to do because they've taken such a hit so maybe you can give us a a little bit of a sense of what we should expect around nursing homes during this legislative session
2: yeah it's a that's a good question because lamont also can do a lot with his executive powers um but the nursing home working group that's been coming up with legislative ideas uh there's staffing is a concern so mandated staffing ratios perhaps um a minimum wage for direct care workers, um, some sort of state policy that gets at uh, visitation to make sure it's equal across the board, um, and also the controversial issue of cameras in uh, in rooms in nursing homes.
0: And in, in this idea of of expanded funding for nursing homes, I know that the the governor has extended some additional funding as as you've been reporting but they're looking for a hell of a lot more than that.
2: Yeah, earlier in the year there was a request for if i'm remembering right um, when someone else jumped in if i'm i got this wrong i think it's it was just over 300 million for uh you know to help with care. So, they got some but they didn't quite get what they were asking for.
0: Paz, how much do you do you see this being an issue that is going to be uh, front and center for people? And and I guess in a bigger sense, how much is this legislative session in your mind going to be taken over by issues having to do with dealing with COVID in nursing homes, in hospitals, everywhere, as opposed to some of the things that lawmakers might generally just bring to the table in any other given year?
1: You know, it's an interesting question because as they struggle directly with COVID, how can they operate? They are dealing with the issues that COVID has exposed in Connecticut. So, I mean, I like to to look at this as this has been one giant stress test for what works and what doesn't work in Connecticut government. What are the weak points uh, in Connecticut economy, the workforce? I mean, this has brought all kinds of issues to the fore. Uh, The reimbursement rates for nursing homes, what that allows them to pay these very essential workers who, in many cases, are getting a little bit more than minimum wage, or at least where minimum wage is going to be in a couple of years. Um, it's raised all kinds of questions about the availability and affordability of daycare. What, um, you know, what people can make providing daycare, what parents will pay. All of this stuff has bubbled up and bubbled up quick, quickly. Now, unfortunately it's come at a time when there are the same pandemic that raises these issues and, and exposes them. It it complicates the ability of the general assembly to deal with them um because some of these things it's you know uh, you're talking about a lot of money right you're talking about how much how much more money can be provided for these areas. Um, We see um, projections of deficits, um, you know, because Connecticut has a decent rainy day fund and the stock market still seems to be chugging along. It may not be a crisis this year, but certainly in the out years, um, you know, this is a state that is still facing deep economic problems. Connecticut, at the start of the pandemic, had a very tight labor market. Um, you know, it was 36 3.7% unemployment rate. And that was a huge opportunity. And this was one of the things that Governor Lamont was trying to work on a year ago. He he uh, rebranded uh, the, the Governor's Workforce Council. He brought in a lot of new members. He's very big on networking, right, and having corporate leaders and others be involved with this. And the, and the opportunity that people saw then was the labor market is so tight. There's now a business reason, a business rationale to work with government, to bring in um, people into the workforce who are having trouble participating for all kinds of of reasons. And of course, you know, that went to hell very quickly, you know, in the middle of March. Um, So, you know, I'm gonna. I'm sort of ducking you on the guts of your question because I don't. I don't know. There are limits on time. There are limits on finances. Connecticut is still considered economically fragile. Um, the private sector had recovered all of its jobs lost in the Great Recession, but Connecticut overall was still below where we were when the Great Recession started in, in 2008, 2009. You know, there was a lot of public sector jobs that have been shed. Um, you know, there's casino, Indian casino jobs that are considered public sector. It's just the way that the, the feds do the numbers. But it's, you know, Connecticut, again, has, has, has been in a bad place for a long time. Um, And, you know, this governor has been very conscious of that, um, even when it comes to very selective tax changes of making it more progressive on the real high earners. There's a reluctance to do that. There's a reluctance to see a headline in the Wall Street Journal about Connecticut raising taxes. And there, there will be that tension in this session and over the next two years leading up to the next election as to what have we learned about what society owes these frontline workers these essential workers and mm-hmm. how are we delivering on that and you know that's a debate that's been on for a while and will get more and more intense
0: there are a couple of questions actually coming in from our audience uh, from barbara what about contract workers in hospitals and nursing homes do they get an under prefer- get on an approved list for vaccination, even if they're not directly employed by the institutions. Uh, Her second question is, will the COVID relief money for nursing homes go to actual patient care and not for raises for management? Those are two good questions. Uh, Jenna Castori, do you have any thoughts on either one of those? Maybe first uh, answer answer the question about um, folks who work in hospitals and nursing homes getting on this list for vaccination.
2: So um, people who work in nursing homes are able to get, they should be able to get vaccinated uh, through their partnership with Walgreens and CVS, which are, I believe, going uh, about three times. uh, And they're somewhere, I think some homes are in round one still, and some are moving into round two. Um, For hospitals, it's also, you go through the hospital. Was there another provider
0: that I missed? Um, no, I think that part of the question was if these folks are, are, uh, temporary workers, maybe not employed by the institutions, people who jump from job to job, which is we we've talked about this a lot. This is one of the issues that has, has really caused a lot of problems with COVID and in nursing homes. There's so many people who are working at five or six different facilities. So I think part of the question goes to, um, will people who aren't necessarily employed by any one institution, will they be able to get into the vaccination line?
2: I believe that is the case. If you're working, if you're patient-facing, if you're working with patients directly, um, you should be able to get vaccinated.
0: Yeah. In the second part of the go ahead, pass. No, I was going to say I,
1: this is going to quickly get very complicated. You know, the first phase it was a fairly controlled environment, hospitals and nursing homes, and now as we go to the next, you know, the next group, it's a far more diverse group. They're in all kinds of places. And that will be really the test for how well Connecticut does in administering this. I, I don't mean to dismiss, uh, you know, how well they've done so far, but let's be honest. I mean, this was gonna, the easiest part of of the rollout. It's going to quickly get very complicated.
0: So there's a lot more that I think we need to talk about that isn't necessarily COVID-related but has this aura of COVID uh, about it. And maybe, Jen, I'll I'll go to you about a, a couple of the issues that we know are going to come up during this legislative session, including some that are very controversial. You mentioned this before, the religious exemption for vaccinations, in some ways, a conversation about vaccinations is incredibly important. I'm assuming that in some ways... This has changed over the course of this year. I could be wrong about this, but if we were having a, a really hot conversation about whether or not kids should be mandated to have vaccines a year ago before a pandemic, something about that conversation must have shifted. Am I wrong?
2: No, you're not wrong. I'm, I mean, it, you know, if anything, uh, folks I was talking to said COVID may complicate this, because even though the COVID vaccine is not on the state's list of mandatory vaccinations right now, um, you know, it's a new vaccine. There's uh, questions about it. Um, And for folks that already were hesitant, this is creating, you know, some more fear. Um, And so, you know, I think that's certainly going to be brought up this session and, you know, in some ways could complicate the effort, um, you know. Right now, it's not an issue, but in the future, uh, could it be on the mandatory list? It could be.
0: So, so what is expected to happen during this legislative session, near as you can see it, around this this religious exemption?
2: So I think there'll definitely be a bill again. Last year, they um, got it out of committee very quickly. It was supposed to be one of the first bills to go to the floor. Um, COVID disrupted that. This year, they're, uh, they seem pretty uh, resolute to do that again.
1: So the state of play when COVID hit and they shut down was, how can they compromise? and How can they alter that? So one of the things that was an issue was, do you take a hard line against people who refuse to vaccinate their children? Or do you take a hard line against people who refuse to vaccinate their children? And they are in school? Schools or school systems that have fallen below what is generally considered to be herd immunity, and now these were kind of the difficult issues, you know, because the idea of throwing kids out of a public school, understandably, there's some reluctance in some quarters to do that. So one of the things that was going on when the the pandemic hit was: is there a way to change uh, change the approach? and perhaps become more selective. You know, if you have school systems, again, or schools that have a 70% vaccination rate instead of a a 94%, I mean, 95% is kind of the magic number, but, you know, do you want to start throwing kids out of school in a school that has a 94% vaccination rate or a 97%, you know? And that that was the discussion that was starting to unfold when, um, you know, they blew the whistle and exited the building.
2: Yeah, I think one thing you'll see this year is, uh, you know, whether or not, you know, last year's bill, there was a compromise. Uh, Children who were already in the school system could remain in the school system. Um, That'll be a a discussion point that's brought up again this year, and I think if you you take that out of the equation, it'll be much more difficult to pass
0: and some of this can be a uh, a conversation that i have next week with uh, our education reporters but you know so much has changed about education this year the the idea that kids had to go to school and be around other kids was just i don't know obvious about a year and a half ago and now we've gone through an entire year in which a whole bunch of people have you know, done online learning, and a lot of educators, including Miguel Cardona, the you know the new Secretary of Education uh, for the Biden administration, has told me we're probably never going back to a learning situation like the one that we used to have. So maybe some of these issues get slightly cleared up by the fact that not everyone's going to be in school together.
2: <laughs> that's certainly a point that's been raised by one of the committee chairs, yeah, on you know, how has learning, uh, remote learning
0: changed? Um, because you're going to be tackling all of these incredibly hot button issues, Jenna, I'll go to you with another one, which is aid in dying legislation is another uh, issue that has come up at the state capitol several times for years. Will there be uh, any sort of bill this legislative session? And maybe you can just give, give our, our viewers here a little bit of um, a little bit of a uh, an idea of what that debate is about
2: yeah I it sounds like that will be the case this year um, as Paz mentioned, there is going to be some limit to what you know they won't be running as many bills this year uh, so there will be they will have to prioritize but this was a plan um, I believe the last version allowed uh, would have allowed doctors to prescribe a lethal dose of medication <clears throat> excuse me to people who are terminally ill. I think the last draft, it was six months or less uh, to live. Um, and they, the patients would have to submit two written requests uh, for that lethal dose. Uh, and there were all kinds of uh, explainers and uh, counseling and other things wrapped into that. Um, it is really controversial. It's never made it out of committee in Connecticut. Um, and even though we have a new legislature this year, it's, it's still gonna be controversial
1: it's i don't know i can't recall where what committee it started last time but you know i i do know that you know the new uh speaker has changed the membership of the public health committee and it's a far more friendly place uh regarding vaccines you know a couple of very prominent vaccine skeptics are off the committee um But, you know, that's one of the things uh, you have to look at, to the extent to which committees have changed, what the new members will mean. There are 21 new House members, three new senators. um, And I don't know that, you know, Aiden dying is something that people were uh, asked about when they were door knocking, running for uh, their first term. So these are the things that it takes some time to sort out. Um, But it's... The people... Uh, the the people allied against you know Aiden dying it's an interesting group because it's it's really not you know liberal or conservative so much as people with disabilities people who have fought to have their voices heard people who tend to be marginalized these are the folks who are most skeptical about you know Aiden dying and the the folks who have always felt in control of their lives are the ones who are adamant that they want the ability to control the end of their life. So it really is for reporters. It's a fascinating issue to see who, how it breaks down and what really motivates people. It, it is a very different issue in that regard.
0: As one of our um, uh, attendees though, j- just said, you know, what, what's the possibility of getting anything remotely controversial through in a session when, our only access to legislators is going to be remote. Are we going to have the the stomach to do this? I, I asked some version of this question before, Paz, but this looks like a, a perfect example of something that people might not want to touch during a session that is just so very weird that we m- might want to park this and come back to it at some later time.
1: Yeah, I'll go back to you know I, the, the word bandwidth. There is This is where figuratively... It, is there, there's a limit to what these folks can handle in a five-month session. You know, you have people coming at you with, there's, uh, you know, the governor insists he is going to put forward a bill that outlines his approach to uh, online gambling. You, you know, this is a very difficult thing. This isn't just legalizing sports betting, which I think is an easy <clears throat> a relatively easy issue for this general assembly, but the idea of everybody, you know, turning your phone, An actual slot machine or blackjack table—that's that's 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 a that's a conversation that's going to be difficult to have without easy access. So you know, there's that. Um, The legalization of marijuana certainly is is going to be back. the leaders, you know, the new speaker and the Senate president are, and the governor all are in favor of it. But the question is, will Connecticut be one of the few states where this has been handled by legislative action as opposed to by referendum? Because that's really how it's been done in the majority of states that have legalized pot.
0: Yeah, and, and Connecticut is not a state that does referendums in the way that Massachusetts or Maine or other places have done this. Vermont, I believe, was the, the first state to do this actually through a legislative process. And as Matt Ritter told me, this is something he absolutely thinks needs to get done one way or the other. It's just a it's just a matter of will there be the bandwidth to, to actually tackle this at this point.
1: And because Connecticut, the only way to do a referendum is to do a constitutional amendment. And unless there is a supermajority, it takes a couple of years to get a question on the ballot. It's got to be done by successive general assemblies. Um, So that would push it out a few years. Now, you could start that process. And let's say New York goes ahead with legalizing pot. You know, Cuomo is insisted on pushing ahead with it. Um, how will that change um, the environment? You know, if you have Massachusetts on one side and, and New York on the other, um, you know the sense is eventually it will happen just because other states are doing it. Um, but there's still a, there's still a reluctance. Um, you know, the governor uh, is is definitely in favor of it. He said it's readily available here. I, he would prefer that it be done in a way that's regulated. That there's some safety, uh, you know, there's some quality, uh, you know, standards, and that, does, and then, quite frankly, the state of Connecticut gets its cut.
0: Yeah, I, I, I want to get back to a couple of the other issues that we're going to be looking at this legislative session. We do have some more questions coming in about some of the things that we were talking about earlier, having to do with vaccinations. Kathy is actually wondering about educators getting vaccinated. She sh- says she's a parent in a public school with special needs kids. Uh, she feels strongly that special needs kids need to be at school in person. It's a challenge with this population. I- I'm wondering, Jenna, as you've been looking through all of and sitting through some of the uh, the meetings that they've been having about who gets vaccines when, where are educators on this list and how much of the conversation has been about the importance of getting especially special needs kids back to school?
2: Well, at least in the first part of the question I can answer, uh, the allocation committee met today and it looks like teachers, uh, educators are gonna be in in phase 1B. Um, The committee is in favor of that. And the governor has signaled that he's going to follow the recommendations of our state committee here. Um, uh, So I would expect that they would, Phase 1B, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, is, this, is the next phase that's coming up. It could start as early as January um, or possibly February.
0: But of course, what we were talking about before is there's a lot of jostling to to get on to phase 1B, but there's still you know, only so many numbers of vaccines and so many people to vaccinate. Frankly, it doesn't really matter if it's 1A, 1B, 2C, 3PO. I mean, at a certain point, we got to get a certain number of vaccines out to a certain number of people. And... Right now, as Castori said earlier, Connecticut seems to be a little bit ahead of the curve in terms of getting those vaccines out to people.
2: Yes, um, I think as of Monday night, the federal data showed that we were one of nine states that had only nine states that had vaccinated uh, 2% or more of the population.
0: Yeah. And that's really important to note. Kister, I want to come back to you on on something else that you've been following here. As we were talking about the various numbers that are coming out from the state and things that legislators might have to grapple with, one of them is is hospitals and hospital capacity. Hospitals have been swamped, not just in Connecticut, but around the country. Uh, Intensive care units, certainly. But just this idea that we don't have enough beds to care for all the people who come in with COVID or anything else, Give us a little sense about what you're seeing in all of these numbers and what we should really be watching for when we start to hear about hospital capacity in the news.
3: Yeah, I think that um, I think the headlines are usually about um, the number of ICU beds that are occupied, um, what I would term as uh, being an occupancy rate. Um, I just think that alone, that can't tell you very much. I think that the the question that you sort of need to be asking is, uh, whether or not a hospital has surged its baseline capacity. So hospitals add beds on a regular basis, depending on a need. Um, even in non-pandemic times, ICU capacity runs pretty much up to the limit because it's sort of wasteful to not be using your ICU units, um, even in a non-pandemic year. So the sort of another way to think about strain is to think about the the number of beds that a hospital has to consistently add over time. Um, when I did this analysis at the end of last month, I think I found about four or five hospitals that had added beds. Um, typically, you, the ICU units can surge by something between twenty to fifty percent. Um, the the hospital the hospital that it surged the most was Yale New Haven, and they signaled that they were about halfway to where they were um, in the in the spring. But um, that's just to say that, in and of itself, hospitals that capacity number isn't terribly meaningful. What you really want to know is how many beds have been added. But it, the bed isn't the limiting factor, really. It's a staffed bed. So it's, it's the staff that go along with the bed. Um, and that's the that's the really key element here. And that's why vaccinations are so important, because um, as you vaccinate more of your staff, that's fewer people that need to duck out and quarantine if they've been exposed to the virus, and et cetera, et cetera. So that's why vaccinations are such a key part of the conversation around hospital capacity now, because um, if we successfully manage to vaccinate our frontline healthcare workers, we uh, won't have to worry so much about stuff when it comes to scaling up in the way that we might have to. Um, Like I said, we're not in the clear yet, and the situation's pretty tenuous still.
0: So, so Paz, I'll put that to you. The role that hospitals play in the state has periodically over the years come up at the state legislature. Some legislatures and governors have looked at hospitals as good ways to get money, Um, certainly. A lot of people look at hospitals and hospital systems as places that make an awful lot of money and need to do a lot more for the state. Given everything that Castori just said about hospitals being overloaded and the very important role that they're playing on the front lines of COVID-19, do we expect any talk about hospitals during this legislative session? Well, the
1: governor has uh, sued for peace with the hospital. <laughs> industry. Uh, he did resolve the litigation that he inherited from Dan Malloy. Um, you know, I mean. The quick review is, uh, you know, they will had kind of deal with the hospitals on how to. I will tax you; it'll it'll help with federal reimbursements, and then we'll kind of split it. You know, we'll cut. You know, it'll be like a basically a kickback. And
0: I remember then- you explaining this on the radio to me once, thinking I can't actually believe that this is a way that people move money around. But anyway, yes, this is how people move money around. But please continue.
1: But you could you could basically you could basically increase the tax it would increase the federal reimbursement you know for medicaid and then you could basically you know rebate the money it was it was it really sounded like a scam that somebody should go to prison for but it was it was legal but the governor held back more of the money and that became a huge huge fight so right now you know this administration is on good terms with the hospitals um it and you know it's not just that they play an important role in um, in healthcare. They are huge employers, and you know it's. I don't know how long this can continue the rate of growth because somebody's going to have to take care of us all and pay for these bills. But you know, Connecticut is one of the um, as far as average age. Connecticut is one of the oldest states in the United States. Um, Healthcare generally is good. Um, the coverage, you know, the number of uninsured relative to the rest of the country is is low. And medicine is one of the areas that there's growth. Um, You know, there's needs for RNs. There's needs for technicians, you know, sterile processing technicians who make sure that all the complicated surgical equipment is cleaned and reassembled. And it's, it's not just, you know, sticking stuff in the dishwasher. I mean, this is pretty complicated stuff. And there's a lot of potential there to, um, you know, uh, increase the workforce. So yeah, the hospitals, um, are a big player in Connecticut politically because of their economic clout, as well as the role they play in health.
0: Which then leads us to one of the two last really big things I want to get to, by the way, for all the people ask, asking questions, we are going to talk about early voting and mail-in voting, because I think that that's one of the most important things that, uh, the legislature needs to tackle. But, but Jenna Carleso Let's talk about uh, health and healthcare, and whether or not there is going to be any movement towards some version of a public option here. It's something that I talked with the incoming House Speaker about. Um, he's very open to it. Ned Lamont, the governor, has not warmed to the idea of the type of public option that I think most people, when they talk about a public option, they mean, right? Like something that's single-payer healthcare controlled by the state, maybe paying into some sort of um, uh, a state health care plan. What do you think is on the table for public option and health care expansion this legislative session?
2: Yeah, this year, I think you'll probably see some version that looks like, you know, using the state's purchasing power to create, uh, negotiate an insurance plan for small businesses. That's, you know, 50 or fewer employees. It, I think that's the definition it has been in the past. Um, nonprofits, et cetera, um, I do think there'll be movement for folks, uh, some help for folks who are buying insurance through the exchange, um, perhaps in the form of additional subsidies. How you get there and how that's paid for is uh, a, a big point of discussion right now.
0: Yeah. Do, Paz, do you think that there's any political will to make this happen this time around or some version of this?
1: there's there are definite people there are definitely people in the legislature who want to pursue this but you know this stuff is complicated and one of the you know the, the rules of the road in politics is if you can't explain it in about 15 or 20 seconds you, you know you're in a deep hole and that's certainly the case with the public option um, I'm glad Jenner works for us because this is something that you know you get deep in it makes your head spin. But you know the governor kind of blundered into this in 2019, where he thought that you know Cigna and and some other providers were comfortable with um, a public option that would be an option. It would be one of many and. And uh, he was quickly disabused of that belief that they were comfortable with it. And that's, you know, that's the other factor here. You know, we talk about the, the role of hospitals uh, as an economic force. You know, Connecticut is an insurance state. And that's always a tension here about how do you, what do you, what do you owe your hometown industry? One of your hometown industries that employ a lot of people at decent salaries um, versus again, this broader question of how should healthcare be provided in the United States?
0: Yeah, and 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 can people actually provide the healthcare that is made available to them? Um, okay, because so many people want to ask, and because I want to ask too, what's going to happen with early voting? absentee balloting or something. I think as everyone saw, there was a record number of ballots cast in the November election in Connecticut, also around the country. And in large part, that's because Connecticut did something it's never done before, which is it made absentee balloting something you could do. It was relatively easy and painless. And a lot of people took advantage of this. It, it I think, pointed the way toward a future that looks a lot more like the way a lot of the rest of the world does it, which is early voting, absentee voting. I know a lot of legislators, Paz, think that this is something that needs to happen. Is it going to happen soon?
1: So a, a couple things. So uh, Connecticut's constitution, unlike almost every other state, is controlling here. And it's, it's a problem. You cannot just change the law uh, and have absentee ballots uh, available to everybody. This was a, a unique situation where there is in the constitution a reference to illness and Connecticut's statute is more restrictive than the constitution. It defines it as your illness. It's not just, John, you're concerned about catching the flu. You don't want to stand in line in November. So you're going to vote by absentee, you know, in a lot of other States you can do that. You know, you got asthma, you're of a certain age, you have certain comorbidities in Connecticut. There's no way to do that. Um, so What they did was a one time change for 2020, which said, we're going to take that reference in the Constitution to illness and say, okay, for the purposes of this pandemic, that means if you are concerned about getting sick from COVID, you can get an absentee ballot. And, you know, the world didn't end. uh, Seemed to go well. I mean, there were issues here about mailing out the applications to. Everybody, as opposed to having them apply. I mean, there are some there are some details that they can tweak, and they, but but the whole idea of Connecticut having the most restrictive rules on absentee ballots. And I don't think my wife can hear me, so she won't kill me for telling this story. But you know, when my wife was pregnant with our second kid, she ended up giving birth on election day, and, and under Connecticut's law, there was no legal way for her to get an absentee ballot. But I'm going to tell you well. She got one because she lied, and and that's what happens. You have to you have to have people sort of lie because it, unless you're going to be out of town, um, we are we have we have now. Um,
0: See, know, that's we, exactly we, the type of voter fraud that President Trump has been telling everybody about. Paz, that I think is very important to bring to light.
1: Two limitations <laughs> is passed. My wife is in the here. And that child who was born that day is now a 28-year-old physician.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly, right? Well, I'll just say with the couple minutes we have left, So this, but this is important. It's very complicated to get anything changed in the state. So it's not just as though we can go into session, everyone can agree, this is a bill, we're going to pass it, and now we're going to vote a different way in the state.
1: Right now there's going to be a special election in Stanford end of February, early March, because somebody, you know, resigned. Well, right now there's no way to do the same absentee ballot rules that we had in 2020, unless they pass a law. And the governor thinks he really, uh, can he do an executive order because his current, the current emergency is going to expire February 9th. So the question is, should there be a permanent change in the law about this, the question of illness, you know, should, Shouldn't it be allowed in every election if you're 75 years old and you're really not comfortable about standing in line to vote? Because right now, Mm -hmm. unless you have a specific illness, you're not supposed to get an absentee ballot to do that. Now, is somebody going to challenge you? Because really, the bottom line is, if you only vote once, the reality is nobody's going to go chase you because maybe you did it by absentee and you weren't supposed to. You know, it is one to a customer, you know.
0: That's Mark Pazniokas, the Capitol Bureau Chief of the Mirror, Jenna Carlesso, the health reporter, and Kasturi Panagioti, who's our data reporter, all speaking to me in a special Mirror preview event that happened last night on Zoom. If you're interested in taking part in these events, you can just go to ctmirror.org slash events and sign up. We've got another one coming up next Wednesday night. We're going to be talking about education and incarceration. Hope you can join us for that. Kyle Constable produced our special program. Thanks so much to our sponsors, CBIA. Thanks also to Bruce Potterman and Beth Hamilton. I'm John Dankoski. We'll see you next week.